you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you remember from last time that we were together, we didn't finish. The guy who was speaking was like a little long-winded. So if he goes over against night, throw something at him. Just kidding. (laughs) So Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1 and go to verse 3 again, and we'll wrap up kind of where we were at last week. And before we do that, let's go ahead and go before the Lord and ask him to bless our time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity that you provided for us to spend time together, to fellowship with one another, and to hear from you and your word. We pray, Father, that you would arrest our attention, that you captivate our hearts and our minds by what you have for us this evening, and that you would conform us in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be diligent to not sin, and be diligent to follow you, and by doing so, that you would conform us in the image of your Son, Jesus we pray these things for uh, your sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So if you remember, the purpose that we were looking at, that we've been discussing, is the idea that we have a specific responsibility to match our lifestyle with our profession of faith. In fact, in some ways, we could even begin to understand that one of the points that the Apostle Paul is making here is to go ahead and take that which is your private life, the the personal you that nobody else ultimately has access to, the you behind closed doors, how you would act or how you would operate in a given circumstance where nobody else is watching, matching what you would do there with what you would do in a public setting. So it's the matching of your lifestyle with your profession of faith. If you're going to say that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a specific responsibility that follows that profession. And especially because there's a risk that I'm sure we would be running if we spent the first three three chapters basking in the glory of all the promises that are being mentioned there. So we've talked about how God predestined you unto salvation. You were chosen from before the foundation of the world to be saved. Your ultimate destiny, your ultimate purpose in life was to become saved, was to be a Christian, saved from sins, and being brought into an everlasting eternity future of enjoying God and living with Him forever. This was your purpose. That's a a phenomenal thing to begin to focus on, a phenomenal privilege to begin to experience, to begin to realize and to understand is the very fact that God said about you, even before he created you, even before he created the world, that I'm going to save you. That's a beautiful reality to have and to experience. 
Especially when you see the horrendousness of Ephesians 2 and you see the reality that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that you were incapable of coming to Christ, you were incapable of, of doing anything in and of yourself to, to uh, come to God, to come to salvation. You couldn't do anything, and yet God had predestined not just simply that you would be saved, but also provided the means of you being saved and regenerates you, makes you alive in Christ in order to become a believer. And then you see in Ephesians 3, this wonderful reality of the mysteries of revelation that have been given to you. These things that are so impossible for other people to understand, except that God gives them to you, that he displays these mysteries, these long-awaited, enjoyable truths about God. And so if you've experienced chapters 1 through 3, and you've read those chapters, you've heard those chapters, you've understood those chapters, then there's a risk that each of us could be running that we would simply hear those things, hear those promises, and say, then I'm perfectly okay. It doesn't matter how I live. One of the things that happens in a lot of circles where people hear the truths of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 and they recognize that salvation is completely of God and there's no human effort that can be contributed to it, the response is, well, then I can go ahead and live as sinfully as I can possibly live and it doesn't matter because God saves me. Of course, barring the Romans' response to that that says, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it. We have the response of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 to that temptation of thinking that it's perfectly okay to just simply, and this might sound strange, trust that I'm going to be saved and not have any kind of inkling about how I'm supposed to live my life. It's perfectly okay to accept the truths and to accept the realities of the doctrines of grace, to say that God has predestined me unto salvation, and then to respond with that and say, it doesn't matter how I live, is going to be responded to here saying, there is a specific responsibility. If Ephesians 1 through 3 is the reality that you experience, then Ephesians 4 through 6 is the lifestyle that you're going to live. You're not just simply predestined unto salvation. You're predestined, as we've even looked at beforehand, to do the works that God has prepared for you to do, to live the life that God has prepared for you to live in. And that's why there's a specific contradiction. There's a certain level of hypocrisy to say that God has predestined me to salvation, which is exactly what you're saying by saying that you believe, by saying that you're a Christian, and then following that up with a lifestyle that doesn't even look like the life that you've been called to. I implore you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You have been called to a specific lifestyle. You have been saved unto a specific purpose. And without this kind of lifestyle then we are hard-pressed to say that the predestination has genuinely taken place or that the experience of salvation has genuinely taken place. That's the temptation that we could begin to run the risk of falling into. And so we've looked at the different ways and in fact even given ourselves the assurance that this passage can give that if, I, if I'm doing some of these things, if I'm, if I'm living in the graces that have been given within verses 1 through 3, if I'm participating within those things, then I can be assured of the genuineness of my salvation. And if these things are absent from my life, it's not that I should go ahead and condemn myself 
but it's that I should begin to be encouraged and refreshed knowing here's a means of living worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's one of the things that we emphasized last time, that this text is specifically speaking to you. This text is talking to you. This is God saying to you, you've been called, live it. Live the way that you've been called. Do this, experience this, and here are some things, some tools to start putting into place so that way you could begin to experience the reality of a life that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And it's enjoyable. This isn't something where it's so demeaning or it's, it's ridiculous or it's pointless or there's no purpose or there's no fruit or there's no benefit or there's no joy. These are things that when they exist within a person's life, they produce one of the highest qualities of life that you could live. You're, if you're not experiencing living a life that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called, you're missing out on the potential of greatness that exists. You're missing out on the joy that could be experienced. Not to say that you'll never experience hardship, but that if you experience a life that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called, then when you experience hardship, you can find the meaning, you can find the purpose, you can find the hope. And that's the hope that we saw in Ephesians 1, the hope of your calling. It's the greatest lifestyle that can be lived. And according to Ephesians 4.1, it is sitting there right in front of us, waiting for us to live it. The only thing that's going to hinder it is going to be your pride. It's going to be your selfishness. It's going to be a selfish desire to please yourself that will hinder you and inhibit you from experiencing this worthwhile lifestyle. And so we looked at several things last time. We looked at the idea that Paul is saying here that in order to be able to walk this lifestyle, there needs to be humbleness, gentleness, patience, and tolerance for one another. There needs to be a degree of lifestyle that would match and, and follow Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, that when you see the immensity of God, you would experience your creatureliness, your, your lowliness, your dirt levelness in comparison to God, and you would begin to understand yourself rightly, and that you would be humble. You would experience a life that is putting God and His desires first, putting God and His being first, putting God and His commands first, putting God and His, and His direction first, putting God and what He says about you to, as more important than what you say about yourself. <coughs> to be gentle and to exercise patience, to be tolerant of other individuals. In other words, take the individuals within this room and put them as more important than yourself. We understand that tolerance, as we also looked at before, was not the idea, was not the subject of embracing somebody for their own self-estimation. They say that this is who they are and you're supposed to just simply accept them for what they say that they are rather than accepting them for who God says that they should be. That's the greatest form of tolerance that can exist. When you, when you patiently endure... <clears throat> excuse me. When you patiently endure somebody 
preaching the gospel to them in hopes of them being conformed into the image of what God says they're supposed to be. That's the idea of tolerance. To endure them lovingly, to endure them with gentleness, with patience, with understanding, but to endure waiting for the opportunity for what is troublesome within their lives to pass by the presence of the gospel, by the presence of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pride is a very anti-other attitude. Pride is an anti-God attitude, more specifically. It's an anti-God attitude that resists who God is, what He says, and what He does, and in place of God, puts yourself as the one who gets to determine how things are supposed to be. The opposite of that would be humility. That would be the pro-God attitude, pro-God's people attitude, pro-lost attitude. In other words, those that are lost, you are for them. You desire to help them. You desire to see them come to Christ because that's the only way that you can truly tolerate somebody is the hope of them being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. One of these days when you guys get married, if that's indeed within your future, the best way of tolerating a person is to the hope of them becoming more like Christ, not just simply tolerating them and enduring them with no glimpse of the dawn, no glimpse of anything that's better, no glimpse of anything that can be an improvement, but because of the power of the gospel that you're convinced of, you tolerate somebody waiting for the opportunity for the gospel to transform their life, which means that you don't endure them and be entirely silent about what God says about them. I know a lot of times that people would say, when you get into a situation and you're preaching the gospel to somebody, there comes a point where you're casting pearls before swine and you're giving what is holy to dogs, and so you should stop preaching the gospel. That's not what Matthew 7 is talking about. What Matthew 7 is talking about is don't allow pearls to be given to swine. Don't allow that which is holy to be given to dogs because they'll trample it and they'll mess it up. And so if you're going to avoid giving that which is holy to dogs, you're going to maintain that which is holy as holy. So it doesn't mean when you get to a certain point, stop preaching the gospel. But instead, be like Ezekiel who was told, you preach the gospel whether they listen or not. Don't be a relenting gospel preacher. Don't be a relenting evangelist. And that's in other people's lives as well as in your life yourself. Be be a relentless evangelist. Be somebody that is irritating to the lost. Don't be somebody that the lost will say, this is the kind of Christian that we like. They've said their piece, they've said what they believe, and then they've stopped. And now we can just go ahead and, you've seen this as bumper stickers, coexist. If you are light and they are darkness, there cannot be a coexistence by the definition of light and dark. I know know this might seem a little bit elementary school, maybe even preschool, maybe even... Maybe even when you're, I don't what age are you in preschool? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's been a while since I've been there. Ha, 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 Jeremy's old. It's, 
been a while, but you know, maybe maybe as soon as you figure out the differences between light and dark, you're saying, I can't have the light on and have darkness in the same room. These are basic principles. This is a first John principle. How can light have fellowship with darkness? There is no such thing as a coexistence there. So if you are genuinely living as a relentless evangelist, you're going to bother somebody. It's just simply going to happen. But a pro-God attitude, a humble attitude, is one that recognizes that what's most important, this is the issue, this is the idea of putting God first. What's most important is what God has to say about reality. Wisdom is ultimately looking at the world through God's perspective. That's how you know that you're wise, is when you're seeing things the way that God sees them, and then you're acting the way God would want you to act. It's a pro-God attitude. We've even seen this concept already presented to us by Christ when he was saying in Luke 9.23 that if you really want to follow me, if you really want to follow Jesus, if it's truly a desire that is born and bred within your heart, within the very core of your being, that if you really want to follow Christ, you take up your cross daily you deny yourself daily and follow after Christ. There's two negatives and one positive. You're supposed to deny yourself and then you're supposed to die. That's what a cross is. It's an instrument of death. Now don't go out and become suicidal. That's not the implication. The implication is spiritual. It's obvious from the context. But you're supposed to deny yourself. You're supposed to exist and exhibit a particular attitude about yourself that if we were to express it very simply, it's this. The ability to say no to yourself. Sounds very much like the subject of self-control. Sounds very much like the issue of self-control. Is that a person who has the ability to say no to themselves is the kind of person that would qualify to be a genuine follower of Christ and is the kind of person who would qualify to have eternal life and not experience condemnation. The person who can say no to themselves. Now, nobody is ever genuinely born with that ability. We saw that from Ephesians 2. You're dead in your spiritual trespasses and sins. And so that's something that would cause each and every one of us to cry out to God, express to God, say to God, I need your help to say no to myself. So that you would be given that life from God, you'd be raised up by God, be given the ability to say that. One of the most difficult concepts, legitimately, the most difficult concept that you will ever battle the rest of your life is saying no to yourself. Saying no to participating within something. Saying no to participating in certain kinds of relationships or in certain kinds of activities. Whatever it is. The ability to say no to yourself is the single greatest problem of humanity. 
That's why it takes the cross. That's why it takes the Christ. That's why it takes the Savior of the world. That's why it takes a Galatians 2.20 mentality. That's why it takes a cross in your life as well, that you're not just to deny yourself, but you're to take up your cross daily so that you can mortify that portion of your life. You can kill that portion of your life that keeps saying, I want, I want, I want. So that way it becomes a little bit easier through the power of the gospel to say no to yourself. Humility then is, a, is an outlook on life where God is more important to you than you are to you. That's where the rubber meets the road when the doors are closed. That's the difficulties of life when there's nobody else to judge you. There's nobody else to condemn you. There's nobody else to say anything to you. There's nobody else to offer counter advice. There's nobody else to say that what you're doing is wrong. No matter what it is, when you're in those positions in those moments where it is easiest to say yes, are you going to practice saying no? Saying no to yourself. These are an issue of life and death. These are important concepts to keep in mind that it's not just simply a better way to live. It is the only way to live. To exist, to walk in humility and in gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. These are principles that belong to a Christian These are principles that belong to eternal life. It's not just simply a helpful suggestion of what to do in life. It is the matter of life and death for the rest of your eternity future to begin to answer these questions. Now, one thing that this will also help to produce, there's a specific goal that's going to exist, and it's going to be one in which will be a huge benefit for your guys' lives other than just simply the issues of the fact that this is eternal life. But there's an immediate result. The things that the Bible teaches and presents in regards to an individual living as a Christian are in very difficult things. In fact, they are impossible. Every every sentence of the scriptures that says, do this, don't do that, avoid this, but pursue this are all things that are absolutely impossible for you to do. There are only things that can be accomplished that can take place within your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, believing and trusting that Jesus Christ was genuinely crucified for your behalf and that he lived for your behalf. It's a very freeing reality to be considered as having already accomplished the full law of God. That's what it's like to be justified. That's what it's like to become a Christian is to be freed up knowing that you're considered, you're counted as having already done these things before God so that these things are not things that can be held against you. It's a very freeing reality in that respect so that you trust not upon your own righteousness, but upon the righteousness of Christ as your means to be just before God and as your means to live rightly before God, which naturally follows. If you have the life of Christ, there should be some semblance of his life within your life. If you have the life of Christ, can he be found within your life? 
Very important principles. But just as no commandment of Scripture is ever intended for you to perform within your own strength, but that you would have God's strength permeating through you in order to be able to perform the task that God has before you, you're also never intended to do that alone in horizontal relationships. You're never intended to be a Christian by yourself apart from other Christians. You're saved into a community of unity. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The idea of peace is a very peculiar concept within Scripture, and I think in a lot of ways it would either mean a ceasefire of your war with God, or it would mean the ability to come to terms and endure rightly situations. Be kind of two general understandings of peace. It's either your relationship with God or it's how you're able to understand and come to a point of contentment with things that are going on within your life, things that happen. Those are the issues of peace. I think in some respects, the latter definition is probably the understanding here of having a bond, having a unity with the Spirit in the bond of peace so that that way you can join a community of believers. You can be a part of each other's lives that will help you be content with everything that life will throw at you. It will help you get to a point in which you can properly experience, properly understand, and properly come to terms with anything that happens no matter how grave it is. And I think peace also would carry with it the understanding of contentment in saying no to yourself. One thing that I have often experienced and seen within individuals' lives is the idea of people who continually struggle and stumble with any particular kind of sin over and over and over again. And one thing that will constantly help you be in the clutches and the snares of sin is to reject others. Is to reject other Christians. That's why even in James chapter 5 when it talks about elders coming to visit you when you're sick and that the implication could even be that you would experience physical ailment because of your sin. Because of repetitive sin. That you would even be in a position where you would be physically hindered by the presence of sin within your life. That you would call for the elders and then it says that they can anoint you with oil. The oil really doesn't do anything. It's just a symbol. And that you would be in a position whereby which you can confess your sins one to another in order that you may be healed. We even see in 1 Corinthians 10 the idea of people that become sick because they participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. People that in that day and time in 1 Corinthians 10, they came to the Lord's table, they came to partake of uh, communion, and they were drunk when they were taking it. And it says, for this reason, some of you are sick, and actually many of you have already fallen asleep, which is a biblical term for dying. The implications of sin within your life, even within some context, is that it is literally ruin, literally misery, and it can even physically affect you. David said in one of the Psalms, he said, while I kept quiet about my sin, my bones wasted away. 
Somebody who recognizes the effect and the problem of sin within their lives can even get to a point of physical anguish because of the presence of sin. So he said, Therefore I will confess my sin to the Lord. So being unified, being brought into a community of believers is something that provides advantage for comfort and advantage for dealing with the issues of sin. The result is going to be unity. The result is an individual who functions well amongst the body of believers. Which brings up another point. Have you ever thought, have you ever just kind of been thinking to yourself and thinking about certain kinds of things that you do, maybe certain kind of sins that exist within your life, and then you think in terms of this not affecting the youth group or not affecting family members or not affecting the church even as a whole. I mean, one thing that you should never do is think about the youth group as being separate from Heritage Christian Fellowship. You are a part of a body of Christ. You are a part of a group of individuals. And as the scriptures talk about a little bit of leaven, leavening the whole lump, one thing that you have to begin to recognize is that what happens here within this text for those individuals who don't walk worthy of a manner in which they've been called are individuals who walk with pride or individuals who walk in them being number one within their life and as a result of that can help to break the unity that exists. There is direct consequences of your sin. There is direct consequences of your actions upon a group of individuals such as this. You can negatively affect face-first youth ministries. And that's any kind of sin. Public sins are more detrimental to the name of Jesus Christ dragging his name through the mud or to the youth group itself because you would think, well, if this person's going to live this way and they go to face first, that's a group of hypocrites. Now, we should also talk about the idea of hypocrisy because I don't want to set an unnecessary burden upon your guys' necks and saying you should never sin. The issue between hypocrisy and a Christian, there is a difference If you are genuinely a Christian, then by definition, you can't be a hypocrite. It's impossible for a genuine Christian to be a hypocrite. It's like John chapter 3, that those who come to the light do so, so that their deeds have been clearly seen as having been done in God. But those who hate the light don't come to the light for fear of their deeds being exposed. So the unbeliever is the person that wants to hide their deeds, wants to hide the reality of their sinfulness. But the true Christian is the one that comes to God, arms wide open, saying, please take care of my sin, and I'm going to cling entirely to someone else's righteousness. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who has abandoned any claim or any profession to any kind of self-righteousness and are clinging for dear life, literally clinging for dear life to an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not theirs. And by that definition, it's impossible for you to be a hypocrite. Because you've done what First John has said. You have confessed. You have said the same thing as God. If you say the same thing as God, then it's impossible for you to be a hypocrite. People can accuse you of that. 
But the reality of you being a Christian, the reality of you clinging to what Christ has done and saying to yourself, I am a sinner, which is God's profession of me, by that very definition, you have eliminated any claim to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy exists in the form of legalism. Legalism is the idea of professing a righteousness that is not your, that is yours. And then, of course, having a private life that is entirely different than your profession. Give you an example. Any Pharisee that never became a Christian. (laughs) Any Pharisee that never became a Christian in the first century. God had said about them, Jesus had said that they were whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked pristine. They looked brilliant. They looked gorgeous. They looked wonderful. They looked righteous. They looked amazing. You guys remember the story of the one Pharisee that was sitting there saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this wretch. I'm not like this tax collector over there. You guys remember that one? Remember that parable? And he's sitting there saying, I have tithed more than any man. I have dropped the coin in the name of God more than any other person has ever done that. I've fasted more. Have you ever, have you ever seen people that have like thrown this one around like, oh, I'm so famished. I've been fasting for like three weeks. <laughs> and it's like you, you hear somebody saying that and you're like, oh, Oh, I am unworthy. I am unworthy, you who are without food. You get that sense of like somebody who, you can, you can pick up on this at any point in time. Somebody who is ready to boast about things that they've done, boast about accomplishments, not recognizing that, that if they're genuinely saved, that it is God who has actually been working within them both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's what it's like. That's, that's how you can begin to recognize hypocrisy. Is if you're not in a position of saying, I can, in and of myself, do nothing good. That's what I love about that song, Amazing Grace. That saved a wretch like me. Being honest, being real. This is... This is a portion of scripture, three verses, that is literally saying, be real. Be real about what you're doing. Be real about what you're saying. If you're a Christian, then there is an element of humility that belongs to your life. You say no to your pleasures. You say no to pornography. You say no to to immoral relationships. You say no to drunkenness. You say no to things that God is displeased with. And you are ready to say yes to things that God is pleased with because He's more important than you. That's your attitude. That's your mindset is that God is more important than me. And so if I have been called, and verse 1 is saying out, it's, it's reaching out to you saying you have been called to a blessed hope of eternity future of being with God. Now allow your life to align with that reality, align with that hope. It's such a glorious and beautiful privilege to experience this calling to be seated as royalty, to be seated at the right hand of Christ, to be seated with Him on the throne, to experience all the spiritual bliss that He has accomplished for you. But there is a lifestyle now that we are intended to go through. 
be real about this. And this results in a tight-knit group of people who mingle in such a way as to protect each other from sin and temptation. Do you have somebody else's back within this room? And I don't mean when some gangsters show up and they've got some brass knuckles on. I mean, I would expect every single one of you guys to step in if, that was, if they were coming for me. Like, even you ladies, you got to step up. I, 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 I don't want to get knocked in the face with metal. That's hard. Even though in some degree there's some applicational value there, I don't, it's, that's a different message. We'll talk about, like, we'll talk about gang fights in another sermon. <laughs> But specifically, do you have each other's backs that if you know something going on, you would be diligent to not just simply bring your own righteousness. That's where people get hurt. Where you're judging them based upon the standards of righteousness that you set up in their life. That's putting an unnecessary burden upon their neck. That's still legalism. Bringing the gospel to their life to protect them, to have their back, knowing that they struggle with that, knowing with that particular sin. And in fact, even, even limiting yourself for the purposes of your brother or sister excelling so that maybe you don't wear particularly revealing clothing because you know, and trust me, it's every dude is attracted to women. It's going to happen. So you might not be wearing particular things because you know it'll cause your brother to stumble. You might not be saying particular things because you know your sister gets offended by that. And of course, there's one element that is specifically present that requires that we get to know each other. You won't want to get to know anybody else within this room until you see them as more important than yourself. If you're important to you, then you're only going to be concerned about surrounding yourself with the people that bring you pleasure, the people that bring you happiness. And anybody else who's somewhat annoying, mildly socially awkward, I'm not calling anybody out specifically. This is just general. There's a couple of people that are like, what? I hang out with people. Okay, I get it. I'm homeschooled. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I actually dropped it that time. None of those things, no, no degree of personality, if it's somewhat awkward, no matter what it is, it's all entirely irrelevant if it's not sin. And really the sin that can happen is the sin within your heart whereby which you are intolerant to somebody else. Or because you're more important than somebody else within this room. And as a result of that, if somebody has any inkling of irritation, then you don't, you don't want to be around them. I mean, if there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Scythian or barbarian. How many Scythians we got in this room? There's a couple of y'all. There's plenty of barbarians. If those 
which those are those are much larger people groups than public school versus home school versus private school versus El Dorado, which is a superior school to any other school that exists. Um, somebody take the shovel from me. This is what happens when you stray from your notes. Such larger people groups than any kind of division we could even think of exists within the church here. There is nothing, no label for you. In fact, he says there's, there's not even male nor female in the idea of salvation. There's no gender. There's no label. There's nothing in response to who you are except Christian, except beloved, except brother in terms of endearment, where you are brother and sister to one another in Christ. The highest degree of relationship under marriage that you guys can have, Christ purchased for you and brought you into a right relationship. There is no dividing lines or barriers or anything anymore. You have the ability to be in each other's lives except for the fact that sin will alienate you. Sin is what pushes you out. The gospel is what pulls you in and that by humility. Here's a few questions that I'll leave you guys with. Are you diligently seeking to match the way you live publicly with the way you live privately? Is this something you think is just going to happen over time? Is this something you think these are pieces that are just going to fall into place? If that was the case, then Paul is saying the stupidest thing in Ephesians 1, 4, 1 through 3. I implore you, I beg you earnestly, I desire sincerely beyond all else, be diligent to walk in a manner in which is worthy of your... So are you diligently seeking how to do that? Are you diligently seeking others as more important than yourself? Are you diligently seeking God as being more important than you? Are you matching the way you live publicly with the way you live privately? Secondly, do you spend more time seeking your own good and pleasure, or are you constantly asking if your actions bring pleasure to God? In other words, you're faced with an opportunity, whatever it is, insert, insert whatever opportunity it is. It could be a relationship, could be something that you're looking at that you shouldn't be, something like that. Whatever it is, put it, put, fill in the blank there. And that when you have the opportunity to do that, are you stopping and asking yourself, is this going to bring pleasure to God? And then, if the answer to that is no, does that prick your conscience and does that bother you that that's not going to bring pleasure to God? Or if you recognize biblically that's, that is something that's going to bring pleasure to God, are you excited about that? Is there a rush of excitement that happens when you begin to realize you have an opportunity to do something that pleases God, which by the way is every single minute of every single day. You have an opportunity for that. Are you concerned about whether or not your actions will be pleasing to God or if your actions will be pleasing to you? Now there is a point in which being diligent to seek the gospel, being diligent to uh, run from sin and to pursue righteousness, that slowly over time, that which is pleasing to God is pleasing to you. Right? 
Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the pleasures of your heart. The pleasures of your heart will only be given to you 100% of the time when you're pleased with God. Delight yourself, be pleased with God, and then he will give you the pleasures of your heart. And then lastly, just as you guys consider some of these things, this is by no means an exhaustive understanding, but just sort of the tip of the iceberg with these questions. But are you concerned for the well-being of other Christians and especially other youth individuals since those are going to be the ones that you can affect the most? Are you more concerned with their well-being? Somebody's involved in a sport. Are you concerned about them excelling well unto the glory of God? Somebody's in a speech competition. I don't know. I'm just kind of digging for application here. Are you concerned with how they're going to do? Somebody has a, a, a an assignment coming up in class and they're supposed to present upon some kind of current event issue. Are you praying for them? That they're going to represent Christ well in God's worldview. Somebody's in a relationship and maybe it's a little rocky. They're, they're experiencing some turmoil. Are you concerned with how you can apply the gospel? How you can help them out with that? Are you concerned for the well-being of others? Somebody in the youth group is hungry. Their parents have not been able to provide. They've fallen on hard times. Economies collapse. Things happen. Are you concerned for them having their next meal? You have a youth leader going down to Mexico to help brothers and sisters down there? Are you concerned with them having the right kind of materials? I remember going on a missions trip and there's a family, immediate family and extended family living in literally a shack smaller than maybe this room, maybe the size of that closet. They had one bathtub and they couldn't waste the water so they had to constantly reuse the water over the course of several weeks. Everybody was bathing in it. Does that bother you? Does that, does that prick your conscience? Or what about the fact that there are six billion some odd people, granted some of those are probably Christians, in fact a good chunk of those are probably Christians, but that there is a vast majority of individuals who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Does that bother you? There are brothers and sisters who are plagued with sin. And if you're a Christian, you know the gospel. You know the remedy. You're the physician that has the miracle shot. And you're walking around a group of people that are dying and afflicted with sin. Are you a relentless evangelist? Are you concerned with the well-being of others? We're going to have to stop there. Our time is out. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the grace that you have given to us. And Lord God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for what you have said. And Father, whatever that I have said that was not handling your word rightly, I pray that you would burn it away like wood and hay and straw that is so useless and so pointless. I pray that you would burn that away and that the gold that is your word that you have said would remain. I pray for these individuals within this room. I thank you so much for them, Father. They are a huge blessing. And I see the evidences of grace within their life. And so I pray that you would continue to bless them and continue to conform them to the image of your son, Jesus, for their eternal salvation. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go solve the world's problems. <laughs>